You are listening to Future Voices, a podcast brought to you by Beha Futures Foundation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Futures Voices brought to you by Bosnia and Herzegovina Futures Foundation. My name is Eddie Chustovic. I'll be your co-host today. Joining me on the podcast today is the lovely Aida. Aida's uh, in Sarajevo. Hello, Aida. Hi, everyone. And uh, today we have a guest uh, joining us all the way from California. We've had a few guests from California, and the time differences between us uh, have made this quite awkward, but we've made it work. So uh, thanks, everyone. Our guest today is Ahmed Chartovic. He speaks French, Turkish, and English, and possibly some other languages that we're not aware of, in addition to his mother tongue. He studied electrical engineering at the University of Sarajevo, but as a result of the war, he would embark on an educational transformative journey that spans three continents, three countries essentially, but three continents also. He completed his bachelor degree at Oran University of Science and Technology in Algeria, master's in telecommunications at a renowned Pogazici University in Turkey, a PhD at the University of New Jersey Institute of Technology, wireless communications, that included uh, some stint with George Mason University. We'll hear more about that later on. And if that wasn't enough, Ahmed would later in his career complete an additional master's degree in data science and engineering at the University of California, San Diego, UCSD, fantastic university. Ahmed has built an incredible career having worked for numerous uh, giants in the telecommunications industry, including Vodafone and now Qualcomm, where he has spent the last 16 years. Ahmed is a highly experienced wireless systems engineer with a demonstrated history of leadership in all phases of deployment of wireless networks and technologies, all the way from R&D to standardization of deployment to performance analysis and optimization. He has deep knowledge in cellular networks, all the way from 3G to 5G and WLAN, so wide area land networks technologies, including radio network, core network and management systems. Ahmed is also a registered USPTO patent agent. We'll hear more about that later on as well. On top of all of that, he has a proven innovation record with over 100 patented ideas. And we thought we were impressed earlier on with some of our guests, but this number is absolutely incredible. And he's now the director of technology, uh, standards technology and Qualcomm company inventing breakthrough technologies that transform how the world connects, computes and communicates. And many of you won't know this, but there are Qualcomm devices found in most of your mobile devices. So we'll dive deep, deep into that with Amir later on. He'll tell us more about how technology and wireless and maybe even about the so-called global program for chipping people through 5G chips hidden in the vaccines, as rumors confirm the coronavirus is an invented strategy to track and control people all over the world. But all jokes aside, Ahmed, I've been stalking your profile on various uh, platforms, specifically on LinkedIn, but also some of your work that's published for quite a while now. And I must say, there's a lot of information about your work, but there's very little information about you. And that's one of the reasons why we're super excited to have you on our podcast here today, to perhaps share your life story and help inspire uh, some of the others who are listening to this presentation. So once again, Amir, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. I guess you were talking about me, but... Um, I, I... <laughs> yeah, sounds like a pretty exciting career. And absolutely, we, we were absolutely impressed with what you're doing. So we're going to dive into uh, a segment of our podcast that actually focuses a little bit more about you as the person rather than you as the professional and everything that you've achieved. 
and we'll see what we can find out about you and your life. So question number one is going to be, who is your biggest hero? Uh, I don't have one. There's a multiple of them. Um, but I would say um, people like uh, Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, and Mahatma Gandhi. Let's say those three. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Just where I am right now, San Diego, California. What is your biggest fear? My biggest fear is to die alone. Which historical figure who is no longer alive would you have liked to have met and had dinner with? Isaac Newton. What really makes you angry and frustrates you? When people do things they're not supposed to do and they know they're not supposed to do it and they still do it. What is your favorite food from back home? Oh, that's easy. Chawapi. What makes you laugh the most? A good joke. What's your favorite sports team? Well, unfortunately, uh, the one that's, I don't know, it probably just died recently, but Kusharkashki uh, Club Bosna Sarajevo. What is your favorite music genre? Rock and roll. Have you ever had a nickname and what is it? Oh, very easy. Chata. If you could go back in time to change just one thing, what would it be? I would invest in Bitcoin. What's the longest you've gone without sleep and why? 24 hours or more and something related to the war, obviously. Do you collect anything? And if you do, what do you collect? Yeah, collect stamps that uh, inherited a collection from my father. What was your first ever job? How far you back you want to go? I used, I start. the first money I ever made was uh, uh, washing the, um, what do you call it, uh, windshields uh, at the gas station back in Bosnia. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and what's your favorite part of Bosnia and Herzegovina? And try to take out your personal uh, bias of where you grew up, perhaps. My favorite uh, part of Bosnia, actually, um, if I take out the bias, then it would be the, you know, the, the, the beautiful uh, areas around Una River. Your favorite author? Mark Twain. What is the best gift you've ever been given? Uh, my children. What would you do if you won the lottery? And I, I'm talking about a substantial amount of uh, money here. I would give a big donation to your, to your uh, Futures Fund, Bosnian Futures Foundation. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And last, <laughs> lastly, what is the proudest achievement in your life? Again, my kids. Amazing. Ahmed, thank you so much for taking part in these 20 questions and getting to know you a little bit. I'm now going to pass it over to my lovely co-host, Aida, who's going to kick us off with a series of questions to get to know the work and uh, your life journey. Yes, I'm so serious when I say that. I know a company that works with the lottery, so we can actually do something about that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, seriously, actually, you, studied, uh, you started your studies in Sarajevo. Uh, did you grow up there? And uh, if we can ask you, is uh, it Mahale or where actually... Uh, do you yeah. come from? <laughs> and uh, if you could tell us something about your early life, we're always fascinated by technology. And let's start with that. Okay. Um, well, thanks very much uh, for all this beautiful introduction. I was sitting there, I was like, are you talking about me? Uh, but um, so, yes, I grew up in, in, in Sarajevo. Um, I am from Gorica. That's the area in Sarajevo. The first, uh, the best thing to describe it is if you watch the movie, Sechashti Se Dolly Bell. Do you remember Dolly Bell? Uh, that's that's my mahala uh, in Sarajevo, and uh, I went to elementary school there, and high school there, Druga Gimnazija. Even though I must say that I did part, uh, spend part of my childhood outside Sarajevo. My parents were working for a period of five, six years when I was a kid, so I started my elementary school actually in Zenica, in uh, one uh, mining town uh, with the, in a school. I remember my first elementary school was. Uh, was in the area of um, miners from, from Bosnian steel mills. Uh, so my early childhood was actually in Zenica, but then um, I think towards the middle of the elementary school, we, we came back to Sarajevo and I 
completed my elementary school there, high school there, and started university there where the war found me. My area is then Gorica and Marindvor, for those who know who know uh, where that is in Sarajevo. And I have to say, Dolly, Dolly Bell is a great movie, and I think that's one yeah. of the reasons why I know about uh, the neighborhood that you grew up in. It's uh, quite central right. to the town as well. But uh, in, obviously the war started and you were studying electrical engineering and everything just changes uh, during that time. You probably yep. ended up somewhere where you probably didn't think about going when you were a kid, right? You went to Algeria. So how did that happen? I mean, we know about many Bosnians going all over the world, <laughs> but you ended up in Algeria. So tell us a little bit about that. So when the war started, I, um, I volunteered and I joined the army of Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, as, uh, as a kid. And um, I stayed in the army for two, almost two years. So I joined in May of 1992. And then, um, you know, spent two years in there uh, at the, what we call Jewish cemetery, uh, front line at the Jewish cemetery in Sarajevo. And uh, during the time I stopped my studies, when I entered, the, when the war started, I was, I believe, sophomore student at uh, electrical engineering of Sarajevo. But two years later, I was still where I, where I had been at the beginning. So there was no, my university was destroyed. Um, some kind of courses were taking place, but nothing really you could you could really um, uh, stick to, especially in my situation. So two years later, I decided that, and some of my friends who had left Sarajevo before the war, I was received letters from them. They were graduating university in places like Zagreb, Istanbul, uh, London. And I was still where I, where I had been before. So I figured out that and at that time, it was 1994, it looks like the war will last forever. Really, 1994 was, I believe, the most hopeless of those years. And uh, it seemed to me that I'll be there, somebody will come back in 2014 and still find me in the same place. So I started, started to figure out how can I continue my studies? What can I do? So um, at the time, I was already in the army, so you could not just pack up and leave. Uh, you had you had a, a war obligation. So I was told that one one way to you can legally leave the army is that if you have a scholarship that you get from somehow from the University of Sarajevo, and there is an office over there of international exchange, and if they get you uh, some kind of a scholarship through them, then they can write a letter to the army asking army to let you go. So um, I went there and talked to the clerk over there and asked him if he had any anything, and he told me, look, buddy, you know, the scholarships for uh, fancy universities, is something we actually do never get here, but I have something just for you. And it's, um, we have a great scholarship here for Algeria. I was like, what? He said, yeah, yeah, we have, uh, we have actually, he says, we have 12 scholarships and they've been sitting on my desk since October. And I think I went to see him somewhere in February, 1994. And we've never been able to find anybody who wants to go there. And uh, uh, our ambassador, in, our Bosnian ambassador in Algeria is calling us here every week and he's really giving us uh, hard times that we are not able to find anybody who wants to go, who wants to leave Sarajevo is being bombed 24 hours a day. People are watching, you know, horrible pictures on television and you cannot find, you are so incapable, you cannot find uh, 12 people who want to leave and go to Algeria. But uh, the clerk said, I just cannot find anybody who wants to go to Algeria. I mean, people want to leave, they don't want to go to Algeria though. So I went back home. I said, no way, okay, forget about that. I went back home and look at the, Still looked at the encyclopedia. There was no internet at the time, obviously. So you had to pick up a book or atlas from, from your bookshelf and check where this Algeria is. And um, I realized it's, a, it's actually a beautiful country in Northern Africa that where uh, the most important thing, the universities are uh, built on the French system. 
they use the French programs, they uh, use the French books. The professors are all trained internationally in France or the United States. And in fact, education-wise, it could be actually a good idea. Plus, you would get to learn French and you would get to learn some Arabic as well. And so I thought, well, compare that to where I am right now. It actually may be, uh, may be a step up. So I packed up my stuff and uh, after quite a lot of troubles, actually, it's not easy to reach Algeria from, from Bizij, Sarajevo. That's a separate story. But uh, eventually I made it up there. And that's, um, I was admitted there to, um, I believe, third year of, of, of studies. So I stayed there, completed my five-year program and had the best three years of my life. So, but basically, you made it not just to Algeria, you made it all around the world. You have quite a, you know, mileage behind you. So, um, could you actually tell us how you traveled all of those parts of the world? So, uh, I have some stats on that. I actually studied, studied at six different universities in uh, four different countries in three different languages. So, I like that stat about me. That's the, the stat about me I like the most. But, so, after, you know, spending uh, almost, I think, two and a half, three years in Algeria, again, the most beautiful years of my life. And uh, some one, one day when I get time, when my kids grow up, I'll probably write something about it. But uh, after that, after I graduated Algeria, at the time, that was 1996, uh, Bosnian passport lost all its uh, luster, so to speak, you know, because of the, all the refugees that, that came went from Bosnia around throughout the Europe. Most European countries put restrictions on entry of Bosnians into there. So remember, we, in, we inherited our passport of Yugoslavia, which was pretty, pretty uh, allowed us to go many places. But then after our, our refugees went to these countries, then people uh, put restrictions. So at the time, when I, by the time I graduated in Algeria in 1996, there were basically three or four countries in the world that you could enter with Bosnian passport. It was, one of them was Turkey, Malaysia, Tunisia, and maybe a couple of others. I did not want to stay in Algeria for the rest of my life. So I had to, I had to go somewhere else. I came to Bosnia, obviously, to check the situation. I, I, it wasn't, there was no, at the time, there was no much perspective for somebody with electrical engineering degree, at least I couldn't find any. And I decided to go to Turkey, where I was able to uh, get admitted to um, the number one university in Turkey, the Bosphorus University, was University, which studies were in English language. And it's, uh, it's basically according to the American educational system. And uh, I was able to uh, find a scholarship there and um, stay there for two, two and a half years, finishing my master's degree. After that, that university is very well connected with, uh, with, with the United States. In fact, uh, I was actually able to find a job in Turkey in, uh, in one of the uh, offices of freshly opened offices of Motorola, United States. But then I got a, a, an offer to come to the United States uh, for a PhD for doctorate studies. And uh, it was, a, well, you asked me earlier, which is the a couple of sleepless nights. Well, I would I actually forgot to mention one of these. So the, those were a couple of sleepless nights about what to do, whether to stay in Turkey working for Motorola or embark on a boat and go to United States uh, on a scholarship to do um, doctoral studies. And I just felt that if I never, if I didn't go to United States at the time, I would have wondered for the rest of my life what could have been. And I just couldn't live with that feeling. So I, I basically quit that job in Istanbul and uh, went to United States. My boss in, from Motorola told me I was crazy. And so did my dad. Uh, but I decided to go to United States and uh, landed at George Mason University in, in uh, Northern Virginia next to Washington. In DC, stayed there for about a year, but then transferred to um, a university in New Jersey where I graduated. Uh, I think it was in 2002 uh, with, the, with the PhD in wireless communications. And then after that, actually, it was uh, right after t September 11, right, 2001. So that was a very difficult time at the time. Uh, it was um, not so easy to find a job, right, especially as a foreigner. 
in uh, and a very very uh, educated meaning in terms of sometimes overqualified for most of the jobs engineering jobs foreigners so um, I had some difficulties there I drove yellow cab for a few months uh, delivered pizza for a few months I was probably the only PhD pizza delivery guy in in, in uh, New Jersey but then after a while I was able to um, find a job in my area uh, worked for AT&T, the first um, job, uh, American operator. And then I embarked on the career of uh, wireless systems engineer that I am in today. You really didn't give up. I mean, the fact that you couldn't get a job in the most difficult time and you were delivering uh, pizzas and doing all sorts of odd jobs. Uh, and then eventually you landed what you wanted. And who would have thought that a guy who was delivering pizza, struggling to get that job at that time, would one day be heading up uh, standards, uh, technology standards at Qualcomm, which is such a recognizable brand today. So kudos to you for, for sticking it in right. there and doing what you did. And this career that you embarked on, obviously, wireless technology was going gangbusters uh, you know, in that period. It still is today. You know, We're going yep. through this transformation, 3G, 4G. You know, it really opened up personal devices and the use of mobile phones and social media came on. Obviously, yeah. fa Facebook came years later, but still there were other social media platforms and they were enabled by, uh, you know, engineers like yourself who really uh, set, set the industry ablaze. So let's talk a little bit about that yeah. career path there. Uh, you've obviously handled every possible aspect of that industry. We, we mentioned that in that brief introduction at the start, but can you talk us through how your career developed uh, as a wireless yep. engineer all the way through to your standards work that you're doing now? You know, sometimes you will hit the jackpot, just like you said. So with all these little challenges that happened before, but at the end of the day, I, I landed at the right time in the right place, right at the outset of the uh, of the revolution in, in wireless cellular technology. And uh, my first job was actually to design the first uh, little trial, 3G trial network in North America. At that point, from that point on, I never looked back. I was very lucky to have landed in, in such an industry that really changed the world over the next 20 years after that. And I was there at the beginning. So I took a full advantage of all that. So uh, nobody should look at me with any kind of uh, <laughs> sympathy. I, I really had a good time over the last 20 years in this industry. So my first job, as I said, was to, uh, 3G was a brand new technology. It was supposed to uh, revolutionize the way that we use cell phones. If you remember before that, people were still questioning, why do we even need cell phones, right? Why can I not just use phone at home? That's the time when I actually joined the industry. And what you could do on your phone, you had those little flip-up phones that you open it up and you, you know, you could only call somebody and potentially text somebody, but people weren't, especially in North America, people were not texting a lot. They just found it too, too cumbersome and too complicated and too time consuming. So it was a little phone in your pocket and that was it. And then um, my company Qualcomm came in with this 3G technology and said, hey, we can do much more with these cell phones. You know, it's not just a phone in your pocket. You can do much more. It could be your little, your little basically window to the world that you carry with you all the time. And, and people who led Qualcomm at the time and, and a couple of other companies as well, really had that vision to say that, you know, this is going to be something that's going to change the world. Do not it's not just a phone in your pocket. And they invested time and money and, and their lives into these um, technologies that were supposed to allow us to do what we are doing today with our smartphones, right, in our pockets. And um, so I was there, the 3G, which was supposed to be the first step in that journey. It was a technology that allowed us to, to exchange data using uh, smartphones, not just voice calls, but actually to download data to maybe visit a web page at a time. And that was the idea to provide uh, a technology that enables us to do that. But as you remember, the user interface was not that developed. Those phones were 
clunky, they were flip-up, they had small screens, and you had to type in everything, and they still had these physical keys on them that you had to, and some, some of them even had little joysticks. It was, it was very hard to use, and that was, the, that was the barrier that people somehow couldn't cross. People saw that, yeah, that's a good idea, but I just cannot use this thing. It's just too hard to use. And then one fine day, sometimes in 2007, I believe, I've, uh, Apple, Steve Jobs came with this thing called iPhone, right? And that thing basically changed the world in, in conjunction with the technology that was already there that Qualcomm and other companies worked on to make sure that this technology is already there. But then Apple came and changed the user interface, which knocked down this big obstacle of usability and user friendliness. And that's when these two things came together in the iPhone that you had now a device that everybody wanted to use. It was pretty and nice and people wanted to use it. And at the same time, it was very useful. It could provide you a lot of things that, that could change your life. And you bring those, these two, those two things together. That was a revolution in, in the wireless industry. And then next step up was 4G, which was a technology that allowed you to uh, download data in much higher speeds with much higher reliability with make this allowed us to, to use apps on your phone, to, to do whatever you want to do with it, to do Zoom calls on your phone, to do whatever you, you need to do to really transform this, this thing in your pocket. And then that was, a, a as we all know, a big, big success, it's a technology that changed the world literally. And then now we are at the stage of, of the next phase, which is a 5G, which is a technology, like you said, designed to basically spread the virus, the COVID virus around the world but also, <laughs> also to do a couple of other useful things uh, along the way to, to be the next step in this, in this journey. But again, I was extremely lucky to be there at the right time, at the beginning, and to ride this, this beautiful wave all these years. And uh, it's been 20 years. I never thought it was going to be 20 years. Uh, if somebody gave me, told me to uh, sign uh, at the beginning that it's going to last for 10 years, I would have, I would have gladly signed. Uh, it's now been 20, and it's not. I don't see any any end in sight. So, uh, as I said, I was extremely lucky to be a part of it, and I still am. I wanted yeah. to talk a little bit about um, Qualcomm as well, because a lot of people sure. are familiar with the household names like Apple, Google, and Samsung, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's you know, they're, they're handheld, so you can see that logo, it's visible, and they're consumer-end uh, devices. Of course, they have a lot of back-end work as well, but companies like Qualcomm perhaps are less visible to, to users, although users are interacting with Qualcomm's technology on a daily basis. But we can call these giants, Apple, Google, and Samsung, they have a lot of that front-end, whereas Qualcomm is doing a lot of the back-end stuff. Qualcomm exactly. is crucial to many of the tech industries that we rely on, and yet so many people aren't aware of them. So can you tell us a little bit more for our listeners, of course, what Qualcomm does, its products, and where they can be found? Uh, well, thanks very much for that, Lee. That What you said is, is, is exactly correct. Uh, and I'd say Qualcomm is probably the, most, the biggest company that you've never heard of. So basically what we do, we, we make a smartphone into a smartphone. So all the things inside your smartphone that make your smartphone a smartphone is what Qualcomm makes. All the chips, chips, uh, a multitude of chips inside your device that enable your device to be a communication device. But not only a communication device, to be a communication device that is, that is cheap enough, that can last in terms of battery for several days, that can give you the quality of communication that you need. Uh, so all that technology inside your device that you don't see and that you actually don't think of, you, you take it for granted. Uh, is what Qualcomm does. Uh, it's I would say that existence of Qualcomm made iPhone possible because 
Steve Jobs, when he sat down to design this iPhone, he knew that around his table, he did not have any, he did not need any uh, wireless technology people because he knew that there's Qualcomm in the back that will take care of, of the technology side. People who were at that table to design iPhone were user interface designer, were industrial, industrial designers, industrial engineers, and people with vision up about user interface and industrial design. But they did not need anybody who would uh, who had to know a lot a lot about the wireless communications, and that's what made the whole iPhone possible. Imagine if Steve Jobs, when he wanted to design his iPhone, imagine that he had to now figure out how to make the whole communication, had to invent the wireless communications from scratch. It would have been impossible. This would have never happened. So it's the existence of Qualcomm in the back that provided all this technology ready-made, basically off the shelf. You can buy components. From for your for your phone and put them arrange them around your phone in a in a you know relatively simple way you buy it from Qualcomm off the shelf put them in your phone and you can only worry about your you know your phone aspect or a user interface aspect and that's what really enabled this um, revolution of smartphones then you had the companies that you have never heard of before coming in and and making uh, communication devices such as smartphones and you know nobody had ever heard of BlackBerry before. BlackBerry is, again, a bunch of people who started BlackBerry, a couple of software engineers who had no idea about wireless communications whatsoever. Uh, all these Chinese companies that make uh, phones, Huawei, uh, Xiaomi, Oppo, Vivo, all these companies were started up by people who had nothing to do with wireless communications whatsoever. And um, the reason they could start uh, companies that make smartphones is that they knew the technology is there, that the wireless communication technology, they can pick it off the, sh off the shelf they can call up Qualcomm, order whatever millions of, of, of chips they need, put it in their phones, and they have a smartphone. So it's really the technology companies at Qualcomm that worked in the back end, like you said, for many years, uh, that were founded by uh, people who spent their lives in wireless communications. Uh, the founders of Qualcomm were pro retired professors of uh, telecommunications at the University of California in San Diego, people who spent their lives in that, who wrote books on, on wireless communications and such, such that laid the groundwork and took care of the technology aspect. And then you can come back, come to, uh, come and see, integrate that into a product like a smartphone that looks nice, that is usable and user-friendly. And you can um, you know, use your talent on, on, on that end without having to worry about the technology aspect. And I think that's what uh, Qualcomm brought to the table. We work silently in the background to make sure that the technology is there. So it's actually you who rule the world of technology behind the scenes as I could conclude from here now. But so you actually put the technical standards, if we can say it like that. And before we dive more into what your role entails with Qualcomm, let's introduce the listeners to, to technical standards and why those are so critical for the world to function. You can also feel free to um, let us also know uh, what your day-to-day -day looks like as a director of technical standards. There are many companies who make smartphones. You have iPhones and you have Huawei's and you have Xiaomi's and Oppo's and Nokia's and, and others and Samsung's and, and LG's and others. And then uh, on the other side of the story is the network, right? It's the, in Bosnia, it's BH Telecom or MTEL or whoever is there or Vodafone's in other countries. And they own what we call network infrastructure, the network side of the story. Those are the antennas and the base stations and all that. 
And there are multitude of vendors who pro provide that. Those are the Nokias and Ericsson's and Samsung's of the world. And so obviously your smartphone is a communication device and it has to talk to the network, right? So it has to communicate with that antenna, with that base station that's somewhere on some of those buildings. Sometimes you drive around and you see those ugly antennas, right? So those are the cell phone antennas. So they have to communicate. So there's a multitude of vendors on both sides. So there must be some kind of standardized language, right? That these smartphones use to talk to the network. And this, this language has to be standardized. Otherwise, um, so that everybody, so you can pick up any phone, can talk to any network, basically. Uh, and that's why, that's what we do in the standards. We go and we standardize this language of communication between the phones and the network so that any phone can talk to any network. It is a very complicated process. There's a lot of involved, and this is a very, very complicated language. It involves a lot of things, uh, anywhere from, for people who, I will be a little bit technical here, just for a second, anywhere from, you know, the way that you modulate your signals, that the power that you use for your signals, the structure of your signals, the coding of your signals, all that, all the way up to, up to how do you register with the network? When, when you power up your phone, what does your phone say first to the network? How does your phone say, hey, I'm here, I want to talk to you? So there's that kind of really language aspects of that. So it's a very, very complicated process. It's, um, there are literally thousands and thousands of these, what we call standard specifications that, that specify these different aspects of this communication between the phone and the network. On top of that, the network is also a complicated uh, ecosystem. On the network side, there are different, um, many different components. There are, like I said, base stations, but there are also databases where you store your user information and, and your subscriber information and information about your subscription and, and all that. So there's a lot of components on the network side where also there are multiple vendors who produce different aspects of that. So there's a lot of standardization that has to go just on the network side as well. So it's an extremely complicated system that requires a lot of standardization. And it's uh, and, and the process that, that you actually uh, reach these agreements, at the end of the day, the way it works, all these companies come to one uh, place. Well, now it's online, obviously, but uh, before we used to travel around the world six to eight times every year. We meet up for a week to two weeks in one spot. We sit in the room from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And we battle it out. Everybody comes with their own solutions, with their own ideas, how things should work, with their own proposals, how this language should, should really work. Some of these proposals are extremely different from each other. And there's a lot of money involved because a lot of these companies spent a lot of time developing these proposals. And they want, them to, well, they want to see them as a part of the standards. But sometimes these solutions conflict with each other and not everybody's solution can, can go in. And as you can imagine, those are very contentious, very, very uh, difficult negotiations, technical negotiations. At the end of the day, what's most interesting is that everything has to be agreed by consensus. So if there's only one company that says, I don't like this, the proposal gets rejected. So the question is, how does it even happen? Well, in the room, you have sometimes 100 companies, literally 100 companies in the room trying to negotiate something where every single one, everybody has to agree on at the end of the day. Uh, so how is it possible? The only way it's possible is this great dynamics of this industry, because we all know every one of these hundred companies in that room know that if we don't agree, then we are all losing because the industry needs, needs us to keep moving. And we need to produce solutions to, to be able to satisfy the technology needs and to be able at the end of the day to make money all together. So there's this wave that we all ride at the same time 
that pushes us forward and nobody wants to be left behind. So it's a very interesting dynamics where you have, as I said, 100 companies that have to agree on something, but uh, they cannot afford not to, not to agree. And it's a, it's a very, um, very interesting dynamics. I had never seen anything like that before. Uh, it's a very interesting experience also personally to be a, to be a part of that. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by standards as well. So I've sat on the IEEE, various IEEE boards uh, in the States okay. before, and I've had the pleasure yeah. of interacting with uh, board members, uh, obviously at standards committees. I have to say, it's beyond me, and uh, I didn't have the patience to sit through a lot of those meetings. So, so I have to say, well done to you to, to being able to sit through that, because ultimately, uh, these discussions that happen at standards uh, meetings really... Uh, mimic and perhaps mirror what happens in modern day politics uh, you've got to come to consensus for people but at the same time everyone's pushing their own agenda to get the best piece of the pie because let's face it the company that does manage to push most of its technology solutions into a standard does have an advantage over other companies and having at least a little bit of a jump start so participating in standard discussions is like participating in democracy if you're not part of it you're left get behind so I'm glad that you talked us through that whole process a little bit, Ahmed. That's fantastic. But let's touch a little bit on your patents uh, and in inventions uh, over this time. I always like to say, what was your first patent? Do you remember your first one? I do. I do remember the first one. And uh, I just want to, um, before we get there, I just want to uh, put some um, water on that fire a little bit. Uh, just, I don't want to be misunderstood that, you know, I do have more than 100 patents on my name. Well, depending how you count patents, um, uh, 100 patents is, um, I would say, 100, more than 100 original ideas, but then patentable ideas that were turned into patents. But then, you know, once the company attorneys take that thing, they then take it and you, you won't believe they file those patents everywhere around the world. So they will take my, pat my idea and patent it in Indonesia, for example. So I have a, quite a few patents in Indonesia and in places like Taiwan. And, and you know, these 100 patentable ideas can actually easily turn to, into more than 500 patents around the world. Just to, But um, I, I don't want to be confused with uh, some people say, well, Nikola Tesla in his life had only 75 patents. And that's pretty much where the discussion should end, right? Anybody who had 100 patents should just keep quiet at that point. <laughs> so I want to uh, explain that a little bit. And they say that... Um, you right now, if you were to count all the patents that are that touch upon the technology that's inside your smartphone, some people have estimated that number of patents between 10,000 and 50,000 patents are basically involved in the technology that's um, inside your phone. Uh, some people say even 100,000 patents. So um, I just want to provide the scale of, of the whole thing. This is really um, a very, very complicated technology that that um, requires uh, a lot of patentable ideas and sometimes sometimes these ideas cover a, a small aspect of, of of one of operation of one component inside the, the device it is obviously very important but um you know as i said there are tens of thousands of these of these little things that need to come together for uh, for um for the whole thing to work which makes the whole standards things even that more amazing right because really how do you how do you match all that into a workable integrated system is really, uh, I would say, one of the biggest achievements of mankind, in my opinion, in, 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 in technical areas is, is that these standards are actually possible and they actually do work. Uh, regarding my first patent, I remember it was about um, the way that uh, uh, the phone can actually adding more smartness to the phone. So uh, a lot of the things that 
uh, when the phone goes around, it basically the idea was that um, you shouldn't think of the phone as just a, just a dumb device that does what the network tells it to do. Network, a phone can be much smarter than that and can go around and remember its, um, its, uh, its past and remember, for example, where it had a dropped call before. Next time it comes to that location, can do little things to try to avoid that call drop at the same location at the next time. And uh, I figured out some ways um, what the phone can do, for example, to um, avoid the possibility of the call drop in the same spot and the next time come, it, it, go, it visits that spot. And uh, some, of that, some of those little um, parts of that idea were actually incorporated into the standard. So I was, uh, I was, uh, I'm, I'm proud of that first one. Nikola Tesla had maybe only 75 patents available at that time, but um, I think that those researchers and those innovators paved the way for us today to have more available resources and the technology to actually develop further. So can you yeah. tell us, how do you invent things? Can you tell us about your approach to innovation? Obviously, you have a ton of resources available. Yeah. Welcome. But how do you go about it? Can you give advice also to... Um, all of aspiring researchers and innovators. That, that is true. We do have, uh, we do so-called organized research uh, in a sense that uh, our research is, um, in a way, it has a, a particular target. Uh, we have, for example, um, one example is when we were moving from 3G to 4G, right? We had a very clear requirements of what 4G uh, should bring on top of 3G, for example. We knew that it had to be faster, it has to be quicker, it has to be more stable, uh, it has to be more scalable and such. So we had some general directions as to uh, which way we need to go. Then, uh, you know, we basically, um, it, it's a teamwork also. I don't think I ever actually filed a patent on my own name only. It was always a team of people. So that's also very important. Uh, the days of, uh, from that point of view, the days of Nikola Tesla, I think, are gone. I don't think, uh, in, at least in these technologies that are very complex, it's very hard for you to come in and figure out something all by yourself, just because if nothing else, you don't have really the, the back knowledge about the, the baseline, what's already there. And that's a big thing, right? Your, your patent has to be something new. It cannot be just a, a rehash of what's already there. And it's very hard for one person to, to in such a complex system to know exactly what's out there in every single little aspect. So you have to start with a team of people and you guys have to get together and, you know, you understand that there's an area that, that needs to be um, filled. There are requirements that need to be filled and uh, you are trying to find the best way to meet those requirements. And I think the teamwork is extremely important that you, you have the right people with you in the room and uh, you're trying to um, really get the, the best reach the best way to, to, to solve the problem. And then the second thing, do not be, um, do not be afraid. I think a lot of ideas remain never realized because people people are somehow hesitate to bring them up. They just feel that you know this is something too simple. It's something that's uh, not so smart. It's something I'm not sure this is really novel. I'm not sure if this is uh, well uh, in this area. Just like in any other part of life, you cannot have these kind of reservations. You just have to shoot out your ideas out there, and don't worry if they are not good enough. People will tell you that. And you just move on. Uh, there's nothing wrong about saying something that's uh, proposing something that's already been done. Somebody will tell you, well, that's been done. Okay, great. Well, let's not think about it then. Um, or if somebody tells you, well, that's kind of obvious. Well, okay, it's obvious. Fine. Do, does, does the other guy think it's obvious too? If, if two people tell you it's obvious, 
and just move on and um, you know don't no uh, you should have no self consciousness in these situations uh, you should just simply be proud of your ideas whatever they are and let them out there for, and find as many people as you can to shoot them down i think that's also very important you you should have your ideas you should have people in the room who are not afraid to tell you that what you came up with is is not novel it's not uh, nothing to be really patented and uh, basically uh, you should have a lot of devil's advocate in the room uh, against your idea uh, but then if you and and they will shoot down you need to know probably more than half of what you came up with maybe even more but that, and that's fine and that's exactly what you want because if you come up with 10 ideas and you bring them into a room and eight of them got shut down after a long process but those two ideas survive uh, and the people say well you know this is something worth pursuing uh, maybe not exactly in the same shape or exactly in the same formulation that you had in mind but if we tweak it in here and here and they tell you how to tweak it then we really have something here and this is something new and this is something that really we really should pursue then you know that down the road it's very unlikely that someone else would be able to do the same thing you should be pre prepared that that's going to happen sometimes down the road as well and out of these two ideas that you had one will survive but then today the uh, you had this one idea that uh, that is really worth a patent and it's really that can be actually uh, implemented in in the product and there's i can tell you there's no no bigger satisfaction really than when you see that your idea that you started you know driving on your on driving home uh, from work uh, and you're just rehashing some thoughts in your head and then you thought thought about this new thing is like wow this maybe what if i did this way and then you come back and you put together a slide deck and and you show it to people and and then they discuss it and they and they try to shoot it down and they can't and then and then end of the day you see that thing go all the way into the standards proposal it gets adopted in the standards and then you see that thing actually implemented in that phone and then you see that it actually worked that the whole process really worked and now your little your little uh, screw that you came up with is in that phone and it's going to stay there forever uh, that's one of the biggest uh, professional satisfactions you can have at least in my in my line of work so uh, the i guess the final word is never be uh, never be afraid of your thoughts whatever you think in your head is original it, it's it's who you are it's uh, you should not feel any kind of self consciousness about it because everybody else think the same way and that's how big, all big ideas uh, come up as as einstein i think said any idea that doesn't look stupid or hopeless in the beginning has no chance of succeed, to succeed so i, I always uh, keep that in the back of my mind i think one of the important aspects uh, of what you've just mentioned is having the right spar as we say sparring partners right individuals right. obviously you have to be open yourself and you know talk talk about what you're thinking and and really start putting pen to paper or these days it's uh, on a laptop or something else but having good sparring partners individuals who surround you uh, who are able to critique what you're what you're talking about what you're thinking is a critical part to that so obviously you've gone through so many different paths in your career over the years you've interacted with so many people what sort of people do you like to surround yourself with and now maybe talk talk us through the context of where you are now and also where you were many years ago but who did you surround yourself with to create that positive environment to be very productive very forward thinking and ultimately very very uh, innovative so uh, along the lines of what i just said i think you want to surround yourself with people who have their own who have their own point of view you don't really want to have yes people around you uh, that's that's i think that's a death sentence to any creativity 
if you have uh, your design meetings, your uh, research meetings should have should not look like uh, chess chess games. Okay, they should be uh, places where people um, are allowed, where people step up and step down, where people walk around the room, where where people are uh, trying to talk over each other, where people are really engaged. And people are not afraid to tell you that what you came up with is basically um, nonsense. That's that's totally okay. You don't want to have a situation where you come up with an idea and you show the, show your idea to people and people say, oh, that's great. That's amazing. Uh, let's go with it. If you get that kind of feedback, you know immediately something is wrong. Uh, it cannot be that great. Uh, nobody is so smart to come up with something that's great out of the box. So it has to be hashed. It has to be polished. So my, uh, my first uh, advice is surround yourself with people who are not afraid to speak up their mind. Of course, they have to have the mind first, so they have to have an education and experience to, to be able to, to have an a, a, a informed opinion. But you really want to have, uh, in, 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 this, in the technology development, you really want to have people who, who are able to have their own point of view and who are not afraid to speak it up. So uh, even though um, those meetings do will be more contentious and you will get out of them a little bit more upset and all that, by the end of the day, whenever the dust settles, you're going to end up with a much, uh, with a much better and uh, more robust solution. And that's what I've been always trying to do in my team, to uh, hire people who are really uh, fearless and they have that self-confidence to speak up their mind. And uh, that's the first uh, thing that, that, that really strikes me as a, to have when I'm hiring somebody. And that's the first thing that I'm, strikes me as, as a, that is, aha, uh -huh. I said, okay, this guy or this girl uh, is... Um, something that we should definitely look at. If I get only nods for whatever I say, and if everything uh, goes smoothly and you get no, don't get any challenge on anything that you say, then you have a problem, I think. Uh, it's not an environment where you can actually uh, be creative. My uh, message to everybody is do not be afraid to speak up your mind because that's, at the end of the day, that's what in this, in this business, that's what people pay for. They pay for your opinions. So don't be afraid to, to speak them up. Last but not least, there are many of our scholars from the Behar Futures Foundation, and all of them want to become the world's best in any area that they're currently passionate about. And they are very passionate, we have to say. They work really hard. And what are your key messages for all young Behar Futures Foundation scholars? They definitely have someone to take advice from. Well, uh, you know, nothing uh, unusual. It's it's the same old um, stuff that you will hear everywhere, but it's true. Do not give up. Do not be discouraged. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, when I graduated my PhD, I could not find a job for 11 months. I applied to 40 different jobs and got only two calls back. And, and they lasted about 15 seconds because the first question was, do you need to, uh, are you an American citizen? When I said no, then they said, okay, thank you very much. Goodbye. So um, never give up on anything. Uh, you have to believe in yourself that you have the ability to, to, to succeed. And then basically you will. Um, you know, I, I believe in that, in that uh, saying that says, if you think you can and if you think you cannot, you're right. So, um, uh, so ha have, a, have a plan. Try to put, a, put up some kind of a plan and execute it. So try to figure out what is that you want to do first and um, you know, keep pushing. When you're young uh, and you're starting out, also, the time is not an issue too much. Uh, do not worry if you feel like time is passing by. It's, it's the time. There's still enough time for everything. And if you have a dream in your head, you should, you should always pursue it. I know it sounds cliche, but it's true. 
And uh, at least my, my life experience was such that um, I always wanted to be in the technology. And obviously, it took me uh, probably 15 years after that to get to that point and three continents and six universities and all that. But at the end of the day, I did end up where I wanted to be. I would say um, never give up and just uh, keep believing in yourself. At the end of the day, it will, uh, it will happen. Inspirational, really inspirational. And I just want to say congratulations for, you know, keeping up with things and just fighting on. And again, I'm so inspired by the fact that you didn't give up <laughs> even after 11 months of uh, not getting that job. I'm, I'm quite, uh, you know, familiar with that in Australia here because the, the students that I teach at my university go through similar challenges, especially being international and uh, not having permanent residency or, as you say, citizenship can be uh, yep. quite uh, quite a down point in your life when you get rejected just because of that rather than the knowledge that you bring. But you are a true testament that, you know, if you keep going and if you keep at it, eventually a door opens up. And once that door opens up, it's for, you know, it's time for you to shine. And I think you shone really, really brightly uh, with, every, with every occasion that you had uh, to do that. Um, and I just want to thank you again on behalf of the Bosnian Schooner Futures Foundation. Aida and I are thrilled to be speaking to you here uh, today, waking up uh, on a Saturday morning to speak to us and to our listeners. Uh, other than that, also, I'm sure there are many young people who are going to really you know, listen to this podcast and look at you as a very inspirational figure, uh, knowing that they have someone to really aspire to and what you've achieved. And we hope that uh, your, you know, the work that we're doing with the foundation is something that maybe you want to be a part of in the near future Definitely. as well. Perhaps mentor someone uh, to success and probably help them avoid uh, the 11 months and the pizza job, if, if possible, uh, by having someone like a big brother like yourself to them. So thanks again for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. And I'll be happy to be a part of your um, your team in the future. Thanks a lot. There you have it, folks. Another great uh, podcast. Aida and I had fun uh, interviewing Amir here today. We look forward to having you on our next podcast, Question Mark, Who's Next? Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you.